Say goodbye to your credit card rewards. Greedy corporate mega stores, led by Walmart and Target, are pushing for a law in Congress to take away your hard-earned cash back and travel points to line their pockets. The Durbin Marshall Credit Card Bill would enact harmful credit card routing mandates that would end credit card rewards as we know it. If you love your credit card rewards, tell your lawmakers, hands off my rewards. Tell them to oppose the Durbin Marshall Credit Card Bill. You are listening to Veggie Doctor Radio, and this is episode number 83. Hey, I'm your host, Dr. Yami. I'm a board-certified pediatrician, certified health and wellness coach, author, and speaker. I'm also a passionate promoter of the power of diet and lifestyle in preventing and reversing chronic disease and bringing joy and longevity into our lives. This podcast is focused on plant-based nutrition, habit formation, motivation, and mindset so that you can have the tools to live the best life possible. Are you ready to get started? Let's do this. You don't want to find out by accident in an emergency situation that there was a reaction. So I do it case by case. I also look at the risk factors. Um, if the child has eczema, that's a risk factor. Hello, veggie lovers. Happy Sunday. I have another plantastic episode of Veggie Doctor Radio for you. This is with a Dr. Manisha Raylan, who is also a board certified allergy immunologist, asthma specialist. We have a fantastic conversation. She's also plant-based, so you get to hear her story. Before I talk a little bit more about that interview and about her background, a few reminders as always. Remember that I do send out a newsletter every week. I would love for you to be on the newsletter so you never miss an episode, never miss any special news, little special treats that I send out occasionally. If you want to be on the newsletter, there's two ways that you can sign up. You can go to my website, dryami.com. That's D-O-C-T-O-R-Y-A-M-I.com forward slash sign up. Or you can text the word fiber, F-I-B-E-R, to 66866. It'll take you through the process and get you signed up. One thing that I keep forgetting to tell you guys is that when you sign up to be on my newsletter through either of these methods, you're going to get a freebie PDF on the five pillars of healthy eating to your inbox. You can print it out. It's got recipes. It's got resources. So that might entice you a little bit to go ahead and join my newsletter. I send an email every week and it's about the podcast I don't send too much more, so hopefully it's not blasting you too much, but at least that way you'll never miss an episode and you'll get to stay on top of what I'm talking about and who I'm bringing onto the show. So thank you so much for signing up. I really appreciate it. The next thing is, is don't forget, I did publish a book. I'm trying to do my best to promote it. If you have read my book, thank you so much. I appreciate it. I hope that you liked it. I hope that you got something out of it. If you have a minute, can you please leave me a review on Amazon, a rating and review? I would really appreciate it. If you have not read it yet, you can order it. 
through Amazon, Barnes and Noble, other major booksellers. If you live in Yakima, come over to my office. You can purchase it at my office as well. So there's lots of different ways. And of course it is available on ebook and the audiobook will be out soon. I wanna take a moment and read another review, another Amazon review. This is from Irma Bordeaux. Irma, I'm sorry, but I'm only gonna say part of your last name because if I try to say the whole thing, I'm not gonna say it right. So Irma Bordeaux, thank you so much, five-star review. The title is Excellent for Every Parent. She says, despite its size, this book is chock full of knowledge. It covers just about any topic in regards to children's nutrition and gets to the point. As a pediatric nurse practitioner, I have recommended this book to several parents. Thank you, Dr. Yami. Thank you so much, Irma, for that wonderful review. I really appreciate you. Thank you for reading my book and being such a great supporter. I love you dearly. Irma is one of my friends, so I really love her and appreciate her. And I thank you so much for writing that review for me. All right, so let's talk a little bit about this episode because this is the second interview where I focus on allergies and some of these topics around allergies, food sensitivities, intolerances, this kind of thing. And it was really great talking to Dr. Raylan. So I talked to Dr. Manisha Raylan because we really got into some of the specifics. One of the things I've been wondering, and actually I already need to update this in my book a little bit. I got part of it right, but the recommendations are evolving as well in this area and it has to do with introducing foods to your infants and young children in order to decrease the risk of developing food allergies so we get into that we get into the specifics of that how to do it when to do it all of that so i hope that you will listen to this episode if that's something that you're interested in we also cover as far as like getting too much exposure to a food, not enough exposure to a food, do either of those scenarios trigger or cause allergies, what might be happening to people that didn't have exposure to a food for a while and then they feel like they got an allergy to it, developed an allergy to it. We talk about oral allergy syndrome. So there's a lot of lot of things that we cover, but in addition to that, we get to hear Dr. Raylan's story and how she became plant-based and how she manages it in her life and her culture and her lifestyle. And I just have to say, I fell in love with Dr. Raylan. She is so sweet and she has a heart of gold. And I can just tell that she cares so much about her patients and who she treats in her office. And she really uh, was generous in her time to devote to this podcast so that we can learn more how to approach these things in our families and me as a doctor because I'm learning things, things are changing, I learn things every day. So I'm very grateful that providers and experts take time to be on this show because we all learn together and it helps us all. So thank you so much, Dr. Raylan. So let me tell you a little bit more about Dr. Manisha Raylan. She is a pediatric allergist and clinical immunologist at a private practice in central New York, where she sees both children and adults for asthma, allergic rhinitis and conjunctivitis, eczema, food allergy, bee allergy, medication allergy, hives, angioedema, and clinical immunology. 
She earned a bachelor's in nutrition and food sciences with honors from Wayne State University, where she also went to medical school. She trained in pediatrics at the University of Rochester in Rochester, New York, followed by a year as a NICU hospitalist and then allergy immunology fellowship at SUNY Buffalo. She loves learning and teaching. She is in charge of the anaphylaxis training at her practice and passionate about women's health, food allergies, rhinitis, and immunotherapy. She maintains a personal professional Instagram account at PedsAllergyMD, where you can follow and reach out to her with questions. Like I said, I really appreciated having Dr. Raylan on the show. We have a lovely conversation. I think you're going to fall in love with her as well. As a reminder, if you have a minute, can you please rate, review my podcast, subscribe to it, and share it. If you think that somebody else would benefit from this episode, all of the wonderful information in these episodes, please share it. Text it to them, email it to them, share it on your social media, any of those forms. I really, really appreciate. Thank you so much for listening to this every week. I'm really grateful for you. And now... Let's listen to a conversation between me and Dr. Manisha Raylan. Dr. Manisha Raylan, thank you so much for being on Veggie Doctor Radio today. I'm so honored to have you as a guest. Thank you for having me. I'm honored to be here. Well, I hope I didn't scare you too much. I know that um, when I first found you on Instagram, I got so excited because I had been <laughs> asking everybody I knew, do you know a plant-based pediatric aller- allergist? Do you know one? Nobody knew one. And then I don't know if you popped up as recommendation. I don't remember how we connected, but I found you and I just got so excited. <laughs> I'm just like, oh my God, I've been looking for you my whole life. I messaged you and, and I was like, oh man, she's probably gonna think I'm psycho or something. But that's how I am. I get really, really excited. So thank you for coming on the show, even though I was acting psycho. No, no. Thank you so much for having me. I have to tell you that I recently changed my profile to say that I'm plant-based because I have been a vegetarian my entire life. Uh-huh. And, um, and you know, being an allergist is difficult to talk about food sometimes in terms of your own personal opinions and beliefs about food, because it's not about me when I'm in the room with the patient, you know, it's about what they need. And if they can't eat certain fruits or vegetables, because they get an itchy mouth, like I'm not going to sit there and be like, you need to eat all your fruits and vegetables. Like you have to, it's hard to balance that. And so I didn't know how publicly I wanted to out myself, but I find that when I speak about my own diet or the fact that, you know, I haven't had eggs since I was like a teenager. It's not a big deal. And look, you can be a doctor and eat whatever diet you want. It doesn't matter. And I think I just do it to relate to patients and um, they've really appreciated that. So I've been a little bit more forthcoming about this and I hope it helps um, in whatever we're about to do today. Yeah. (laughs) Yeah. And I feel like there's a growing community, right? And I think um, what happens too is that for some parents that may choose to raise their children a certain way, whether it's for environmental reasons or compassion reasons or whatever, they have a really hard time finding medical professionals who may support that. So I think that's why it's important. But since we're on that topic, tell us about your way of eating and your journey (laughs) when it comes to your diet. I'm curious about it. 
Okay, well, um, it's really, it's not that difficult to explain. I uh, was raised a vegetarian my entire life, um, and that was lacto-ovo when I was younger, and that was just because of culture. My parents never ate seafood, never ate meat, so they, it wasn't allowed in the house, and I didn't care for it. I actually, I grew up Indian, and I love Indian food, and I never missed it. I never, like, needed anything more in my life. Um, my dad used to cook us eggs when we were younger, and I liked them, but my mom actually grew up without eggs. And so she just liked the smell of eggs. And um, so we stopped making eggs in the house one day. And then like, and I remember this clearly in 11th grade, I had meringue pie and 30 minutes later, I started vomiting. Um, so I think looking back, I kind of had an allergic reaction. It turned me off to eggs and I've never had a desire to ingest egg ever again. Um, and a part of me is like, maybe I was allergic. Maybe I wasn't. I probably should get skin tested and be my own patient one day, <laughs> um, but I don't have a desire to eat it. So I don't care if I'm allergic or not, because it's not going to change what I want to do for myself every day. And then um, the decision to kind of eliminate cow's milk has been more recent. Um, it's been a lot of reading and a lot of communicating on social media and thinking and reflecting on milk. It really kicked up for me personally after I had my first child and I was difficulty breastfeeding and um, producing breast milk of my own and feeling so strongly about breastfeeding and wanting to breastfeed my child and frustrated at my body and then being like, why would I ever substitute my own breast with another mammal's breast when human is, is really, really the best milk for a human body? And so that led me on a soul searching journey. And I decided that I didn't need cow's milk in my life and I don't care for it and I don't miss it. And it's been really great because uh, cashew milk is really so delicious. <laughs> cashew milk ice cream is really like my favorite. So um, I'm blessed that I don't have a nut allergy. It makes my transition a lot easier. Mm -hmm. And so I completely empathize. And I, like I said, I don't, I'm not pushing my patients one way or another, but I, the parents that come in and are like, oh man, cow's milk and egg milk, they're the two most common food allergens in children. And so when they come in and they're so upset, I'm like, guys, it's not a big deal. They're going to grow up being healthier. Mm -hmm. The newer studies are showing veganism is good for our own health. And um, I have a lot of things that I want to share with you today. So wow. <laughs> I'm going to stop I'm, there. I could go I'm just so on. excited. Well, well I, I, I love the evolution because it has been stepwise and you've had different experiences that have made you conscious of those things. But my first thought was, I love Indian food too. So thank you. Thank <laughs> yes, you India for existing and Indian food for existing because I and love spices. it. <laughs> yeah. But it does seem like Indian food, especially vegetarian Indian food yeah. is very heavy in dairy. So yeah. how did you navigate that? You know, uh, like I said, nut butters are my, my biggest friend. So I actually have cashew butter that will be expiring from our office because we use cashew butters for challenges. And I take it home and I make it a paste. Um, and I use that for Thai food replacement, for Indian food replacement, because a lot of our curries and sauces ask for a little bit of cashew or a little bit of peanut anyway. So it's just something natural. And 
I personally have um, a very big opinions on, on expiration dates <laughs> and I don't believe in them very strongly and maybe that's good or maybe that's bad. That could be another topic for a discussion. Um, so I feel bad when we throw food away just because it says March 31st, like it's not going to turn into poison on April 1st. Mm -hmm. But, you know, I understand from a legal standpoint, we shouldn't be um, using things past expiration and I definitely don't encourage that in, you know, professional setting. But when it comes to me personally, I don't like throwing away things. I don't, I'm very big on environmental consciousness and, um, you know, within reason, if it smells good and looks good and there's no active bacterial or yeast or fungal infection growing on it, um, I try to cook with it and I'm heating it up and I'm cooking it. So that's awesome. So you've yeah. found ways that you've been able to adapt your recipes and it sounds right. like you really haven't missed the dairy in them. No. And you know, um, you can definitely use soy as an alternative for butters and they, it takes a little bit of getting used to in your mind, because I think what you're so used to reaching for in your cabinet or in your cupboard and then saying, do I really need this? Do I really want to put this in my body? And, um, and I, I just, it just turns me off. Like, mm -hmm, mm -hmm. and we have conscious choices and we can make them and it's definitely harder dining out. Mm -hmm. Um, and I, I still struggle with that. I still struggle with, you know, uh, social functions and, you know, where do I want to draw the line, um, on that? So it's not perfect. <laughs> yeah. So where are you on that now? Like whenever you're out socially, do you flex a little bit? Are you a little bit more flexible with some of your choices? I'm more flexible, but I definitely will not, um, I will definitely not make it my, my soul powered meal. Mm -hmm. And I'll, you know, if there's like a layer of cheese on something, I prefer to eat underneath it. Like, mm -hmm. you know, with pasta and they put the, the top, like the lasagna pasta, they put like a layer of cheese on top. And I'm like, well, just because it's there, just because it's on my plate doesn't mean I have to eat it. I can still mm -hmm. eat around it. Mm -hmm. And, you know, just, you can always ask them to remove cheese. And a lot of restaurants are very, very good about, you know, making dishes vegan. Mm -hmm. And I think that it's, they're appreciating that it's more of a movement. So it's getting easier and I yeah. appreciate that. Yeah. Wow. Awesome. What a story. That's great. All right. Thank so you. based on yeah. all that, I have lots of questions that relate. Oh, okay. Let's talk allergy One of the things. Let's talk about allergies. Let's get into the allergies sure. because this is, I think also very relevant, um, to the population I deal with a lot, which is I get a lot of parents that want to raise their children, vegan plant-based or heavily plant-based. Mm -hmm. I want to know a little bit more about foods during pregnancy, mm -hmm. introduction of solids for infants. And the relationship between that and allergy potential. What can you tell okay. me about that? So the pregnancy stuff has been looked at and it is really hard to come with conc to conclusive evidence. Like there is no conclusion either way. What we tell all of our patients right now is eat what you want to eat. Mm -hmm. um, and I sometimes tell my moms that there's cravings for a reason. Like I believe, I truly believe that if you're craving protein, your body probably needs it. Mm -hmm. And, um, and your body's changing so much in so many different ways. And every, you know, every week is something different. So, um, I just stick with that. That's all we know. And that's all that we have in terms of evidence. So 
that's all I can say at the moment. Now, in regards to solid food introduction, we have had a lot more recent data on that. And that was back in 2015, 2016 with Gideon Lack's study on introducing um, peanut early into the child. And that was a study that did over 600 different infants. And it looked at infants, so four to 11 months of age. And they picked infants that was at a good moderate risk for development of allergies. And what we define as risk is eczema and a pre-existing food allergy, such as an egg allergy. And they found that kids with egg allergy are more likely to have a peanut allergy. So what they did was that intervention where they try to introduce peanuts early rather than later because we know that later introduction wasn't working. We've seen a boom in the tripling of peanut allergy rates in just a, you know, a matter of a decade. So this is not an insignificant increase. So the study was amazing because they showed that it was like a good 80% reduction in risk wow. and 70 to 80%. And really, truly what I, I encourage all my patients today is between four to six months when your child has had a couple of solid foods um, and tolerated it well, you know, they're sitting up, they're able to hold their head, they're able to have the, the swallow reflux um, down. So Sorry, reflex, not reflux. But, <laughs> you know, um, so once that's happened, then it's time to introduce peanuts. And there's a few different ways. Um, peanut butter, if you dilute it, so it's not too sticky. Peanut flour, um, peanut powder, or there's like, there's little like um, snacks, like peanut puff snacks, and mm -hmm. they go by brand name Bamba, but a couple of different other, um, like Trader Joe's has their own branded uh, Bamba-ish snacks, but those are really easy. They dissolve easily in the mouth. And so any one of those four products, um, always on a day when your child is not sick and is feeling good. And I prefer early in the morning so that there's plenty of people to call if there's any reactions. Again, only if your child does not have eczema or other food allergies and time to eat peanuts. <laughs> so for the kids that do have moderate to severe eczema or other food allergies, yes. should that challenge be in the allergist office then? Absolutely. So not only do we don't challenge right away, if you came in to see me, the first thing we do is a skin prick test. Okay. And Dr. Lack and uh, the rest of the study authors had said to do the scratch to peanut in duplicate. Mm -hmm. So we'll actually do a prick and a prick is just a scratch on the top surface of the skin. We use a plastic little um, device to do it. We put a drop of peanut and then scratch right through it. Mm -hmm. So it's not very invasive. And the results take 15 minutes. And we do it in duplicates so that if it's really negative, we can tell you with assurance it's negative. If it's positive, we can tell you, hey, it's like really positive. And the study gave us some kind of a parameter. So if it's between three to five millimeters, then we want to do it in the office, the challenge. If it's like higher than a certain size, then you're probably more at risk and we need to avoid peanuts. Mm -hmm. And then if it's zeros, then we talk about in office versus at home. Okay, great. So definitely I've been encouraging all of my patients to be consuming peanuts and I talk to them about introducing it. But what about some of these other foods that are highly allergenic? So I'm referring mm -hmm. to egg, fish, mm -hmm. um, dairy, cow's milk. Mm -hmm. What is your advice on those? 
So the advice as a whole, as you may know, is like we don't have conclusive evidence. We don't have like a strict uniform allergy society statement position kind of paper on that. But in general, everybody's been saying introduce foods early. Mm -hmm. So I've been encouraging families to kind of do like a more of a baby led weaning mm -hmm. style of feeding your child where you're at the table together, eat together. You know, if you're having clam chowder for dinner because that's what you're choosing to eat, let them have some of it with you. Um, so I've been encouraging parents to eat openly. The exception has been cow's milk. Um, from what I remember, I've been trying to ask them to wait until more closer to nine months, mm -hmm. um, unless it's like a baked form of dairy. Mm -hmm. But like, because, you know, most kids are we're supposed to encourage breastfeeding and mm -hmm. I'm very pro breastfeeding as you already know. So um, breastfeeding until the child does not want to breastfeed anymore. Minimum one year of age is my push for parents and WHO says even up to maybe three. Mm -hmm. So, um, you know, why do you need cow's milk in a diet if you've got breast milk going mm -hmm. on? Mm -hmm. So um, there's a dairy ladder approach in the European culture it's called dairy ladder and um you they they have a, their own little pyramid of like how they suggest dairy be introduced into children so sometimes i'll refer parents to that and i'll say check out the dairy ladder um but i always say eat together eat as a family that's what we're meant to do so what about if the family is vegan and they don't have any of those foods do you feel like they should deliberately include some of those foods to decrease the risk of allergies in their children I do. I ask them to consider it. Um, but I also tell them that I am not here to put my personal opinions on the line. And if they feel like they can control their outside environment, you know, like, are the grandparents vegan? Are the babysitters vegan? Are, you know, is everyone that will take care of the child and potentially feed the child vegan? Because you don't want to find out by accident in an emergency situation that there was a reaction. Mm -hmm. So I do it case by case. Mm -hmm. I also look at the risk factors. Um, if a child has eczema, that's a risk factor to me for food allergies and depends moderate to severe, like you alluded, it's really important as opposed to a tiny patch on an arm or a tiny patch on a leg. Um, and then I look at family histories or family history of food allergies, because that might change me in my recommendations and it modifies their risk. Um, but I always encourage parents and I say, this is your child. I'm just mm -hmm. here to help guide you. I'm not going to mm -hmm. tell you what to do. Mm -hmm. Um, and if you are sure that they won't be exposed to milk or eggs and that's what you want to do, that's your choice. Yeah. Great. And by the family history, is that whenever you see a family history of food allergies, does mm -hmm. that make you more likely to, to feel a little bit like we really should do this or less likely? Uh, more likely that we should probably do this. Just expose your child so that they're not later going to be sensitized mm -hmm. and then be, become allergic to a food. So um, one interesting thing about family history that I get asked a lot is, you know, dad has a peanut allergy, so my son's never going to eat peanuts. And I, I like to remind people that our bodies are great, but we just because a parent has one specific food trigger does not mean your child is going to have the same exact food trigger. Mm -hmm. And in fact, it's kind of sometimes the opposite. I'll see, um, you know, a dad with a peanut allergy and the kid will come in with an egg allergy, or um, I'll see a dad with a shellfish allergy and the child has a fish allergy. Mm -hmm. So 
you just increase your risk of a food allergy, but you don't increase the risk of that specific specific food. one. Yeah, it's almost yeah. like there might be some sort of genetic predisposition to being that a topic allergenic individual rather than having like a peanut allergy gene or something. Correct. No. Yeah. Okay. So, but I, I do want to know more specifics about this because I do have lots of families that are vegan. Yeah. So if, if we want to be prudent, if we want to decrease the risk of children developing or becoming sensitized to see these proteins, we introduce it at four to six months. How often are we introducing or mm-hmm. continuing the introduction and for how mm-hmm. long, like when can we stop and be like, all right, you're not allergic and now we can stop giving it to you or does that have to be forever? Like, do you have a certain parameter that you use to guide families? I do actually. So good question. Um, I usually recommend three servings a week and I use serving size. So um, if the package says one cookie is a serving size, then theoretically the package is saying we should only be eating one cookie. And so sometimes it's hard. Mm-hmm. <laughs> it's cookies. Who doesn't like cookies? Um, but I, uh, I genuinely use that as a guide. So for example, with peanut, when we did, we were talking about the infant and introduction to peanut butter or whatever, we're, we always say three servings and we talk about about two teaspoons worth. Mm-hmm. And so depending on what the food is and what the serving size is, I I say three times a week and based on the leap study, um, they were saying at least the first year is the most important for the three times a week. They looked at kids until age five. So maybe we're talking a lot longer, um, but I encourage the first two to three years if possible. Mm -hmm. And, and then, you know, as your child is entering toddlerhood, they too become picky and it can become a battle. And I tell parents, this is, you know, I never, I don't want to make food a battle. You mm-hmm. offer your child the right foods and they make their choices because otherwise I feel like it causes a setup for long-term psychological um, associations and the forcedness, you know, um, to clean your plate. Like that's not good for balancing obesity and listening to your hunger cues. And so there needs to be a balance in everything we do. It sounds like you read my book already. So that's awesome. You I'll have a book? About my book. Oh, no. yes. I, I'll send you a copy. I will okay. send you a copy. Complimentary. Thank you. I'm so sorry. <laughs> okay. So um, which are these foods then? So we talked about egg, yeah. uh, dairy, peanut. Yep. What about shellfish or fish? Which ones are the ones specifically that you're telling families? Let's be deliberate about introducing and maintaining okay. for at least a year or so. It's those three, the first three foods. Okay. I definitely don't bring up seafood in every single discussion because I grew up without seafood. And so I don't foresee it. Like if the families are not eating and a lot of families have a personal opinions on shellfish versus mm-hmm. fish. And then I have a environmental opinion on this stuff. Like mm-hmm. you know, shellfish are bottom feeders and our waters are polluted and the plastics. And I don't know how that's all coming back into our bodies and playing a role in our epigenetics. So I'm taking you back now to like hygiene hypothesis and like what causes allergies. And I get asked that question at least once a day. Mm. And I'm sure that the things that are happening in our world and with the climate and the changes in the soil, the changes in our pollen season, I think it's all in, in the interplay. Like mm-hmm. we're part of nature as much as nature is a part of us. Mm-hmm. Um, And I think some of what we're doing to nature is affecting us and it's coming at a very top level control. And we're just now starting to scratch the surface and understand it. Yeah. 
And there's a lot we don't understand and may Correct. not understand for a while because it is so complicated and Correct. it doesn't stay static. We live in a dynamic world that is changing and things are changing rapidly around us. So there's a lot, I think, that we're going to find out in the coming years. Absolutely. Okay. That is super helpful and super interesting. So I want to take it a step further. So, mm -hmm. you know, my family and I, we've been vegan plant-based for eight years. My, my lower, my older son, he grew yeah. up pretty much healthy-ish mm -hmm. omnivore diet. So he's been exposed mm -hmm. to everything. My younger son was adopted and then 18 months is whenever we made the switch, but pretty much exposed to a lot of things until then. There are some people who have said that they believe, and this is not professionals, this is just people, yeah. social media, you know, <laughs> that have yeah. said that they believe that restricting certain foods cause them to develop allergies. Is there mm -hmm. any, anything to that? Could that be true? That if you decided you're not going to have eggs now for several years, and then you mm -hmm. get exposed to it, that you could have developed an allergy because you weren't exposed to it? That's a really good question. And not that I know of offhand, I will tell you if you were allergic to it in the beginning as a young child, then outgrew your allergies, then stopped eating it, you may have a relapse of your food allergy. And so we're talking like low percentage, like one to 5% or less chance. And this is something very important because when I do oral challenges with my patients in the office and I say, hey guys, congratulations, your skin test looks like it's decreasing and we need to have you eat this food in front of me, prove to me your body can handle it. And then I need you to eat it three times a week. Mm -hmm. And if you decide not to, because you don't like the taste, or maybe you didn't, something else has turned you off about the food during the challenge, but you didn't vocalize that to me. And I didn't see any outwardly signs of symptoms, but if you decide not to keep that food in your diet, yes, you can have a relapse of that allergy. Okay. So what I've heard it from an allergic perspective, um, but I don't know it from someone that's not atopic. Yeah. And then is choosing not to eat that food. The other thing is that the power of our mind, mm -hmm. our mind is extremely powerful. And so, you know, when we smell peanut butter, we know what that smells like. And we remember that olfactory nerve of ours connected to our brains and our hippocampus and stuff. So it's like, we can sometimes have responses that feel real, but are not internally microscopically the allergenic pathway of anaphylaxis. And so we call it anaphylactoid when it's similar, but not anaphylactic. And I bring up smells because I have definitely had patients ask me, well, what about, you know, cooking? What about touching? What about um, inhaling these allergens? And the ones that are proven are fish and shellfish. So cooking seafood does release some allergens into the air and wow. may trigger response for some patients. Um, I haven't heard that for majority of the other ones. And it's very difficult to test that theory, right? Mm. And who am I to tell you what you are feeling? If you, if you or your child is allergic to a food, please don't bring it in the home. Please mm -hmm. don't cook with it. You know, please open the windows. Like, please be respectful to that other person's decision for their own safety, first yeah. and foremost. But yeah, so I have to answer your question in a very long-winded way. 
Um, not yeah. that I know of. That's super um, interesting. Yeah. And, and that made me think of what you said, the nocebo effect, right? So they've yeah. done studies with people who think they have this, which is a whole different thing, not to confuse the, the conversation, but like a gluten sensitivity. And they gave yeah. them like a non-gluten thing, but they said, this is gluten. And then people yeah. developed the exact same symptoms, Symptom. even though it wasn't that because they believe that that's what it was. So yeah. you're right. The, the mind is very powerful, but to go back to what you said, just to clarify, I think what you're trying to say is just that we can have an allergy, but then develop a tolerance. And so then essentially we're not showing the allergic symptoms. So we've developed the tolerance by eating it, by being exposed to it. We stop being exposed to it for a certain period of time we lose that tolerance. And so Correct. then those symptoms might come back. So that's possible explanation for why some people may think they developed an allergy. I think another explanation is that people call allergy all kinds of things that aren't Correct. truly allergy, oh which are gosh, more Correct. like food sensitivities or food intolerances. And I think that's probably the majority of what's happening when people say they develop an allergy. <laughs> yes, you are very, very correct. And I have to tell you, thank you for bringing that up because that is another thing I talk about at least five times a day, which is what is an allergy to an allergist mm -hmm. and what is considered an intolerance um, otherwise. And mm -hmm. like, an allergy to us is when it's mediated by a very specific pathway, which is the IgE pathway. And that's not to say that there are not other pathways. It's just this is the one that we have access to that we can test by testing that is approved from the FDA, from insurance. And what makes testing approved? Why do we even approve tests? It's because they're reproducible. You do them in my office and you do them down the street or in Texas with another board certified allergist and you're gonna get similar responses. And that's what we're looking for, that no matter where you do it, you have the same answers because you're, this, you're the same one person body, right? Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. But with intolerances, it's more like you eat the food and just keep getting the same exact symptoms. Mm -hmm. And usually it's localized to a gut response mm -hmm. or a skin response, but that's about it. It's exactly, it's predictable. It's, um, it's always based on the, the dose of the allergen and the amount that you eat. And then you're going to feel well and you know exactly what's going to happen. Mm -hmm. Whereas a allergy, you eat the food, you're going to have mild symptoms the first time, little bit more the second time, the third time you're going to start having hives and swelling, the fourth time you're going to have hives and swelling and trouble breathing and maybe start to feel nauseous, the fifth time like it builds. Mm -hmm. So it's very clear that you're having a reaction. Yeah. And it's every subsequent exposure is worse and you need less and less of the food to yeah. trigger it. Wow. It's undeniable, right? And you, you have obvious symptoms pretty quickly with allergies. Correct. Okay. Minutes to hours, two hours is like what we usually talk about. As the, as the longer Time end brain. of it. Yeah. Say goodbye to your credit card rewards. Greedy corporate mega stores led by Walmart and Target are pushing for a law in Congress to take away your hard-earned cash back and travel points to line their pockets. The Durbin Marshall credit card bill would enact harmful credit card routing mandates that would end credit card rewards as we know it. If you love your credit card rewards, tell your lawmakers, hands off my rewards. Tell them to oppose the Durbin Marshall credit card bill. Okay, then the opposite question I have when it comes to food is certain people have said, well, 
I'm avoiding this or this or this for whatever reason. So I'm eating mm -hmm. a lot of this. So say that there's some people now it's kind of trendy to not eat gluten or wheat. And so mm -hmm. now there's a bunch of products that are made out of brown rice or corn mm -hmm. or something like that. So mm -hmm. I've had people ask me, does eating a bunch more of that food increase my risk of developing allergy to that food? Now, if I'm eating a bunch of corn products more than I did before, does that increase my risk of developing a corn allergy? Not that I know of, not from an allergy perspective. Again, an intolerance, you know, it's anything is possible. Mm -hmm. And my, my biggest response to that is please eat a varied diet. I love the rainbow idea and, you know, rainbows are what, what we are meant to chase and to eat. So, um, I always, that was, that's always my recommendation is try different foods, show your gut bacteria, 30 different kinds of fruits and vegetables in the course of a week, like, or set a number, set a goal. And it's not just apples and oranges and bananas every day, you know, and I'm like, please mix up the fruits, mix up what you're showing and do what's in season because that's how we were meant to eat. As hunters and gatherers back in the day, we ate what was available to us. Mm -hmm. We didn't have mangoes in season all year round. So I don't think eating mangoes every single you know, week for all year round is necessarily what we were meant to do. Mm -hmm. And everything in moderation is usually what I um, respond with on that. Okay, that's great advice. What is your approach to what I imagine you probably see a lot in your office of patients that come in with these nonspecific sort of vague symptoms where they think it might be an allergy. They get allergy tested. The allergy test is negative. They think mm -hmm. it might be re related to a certain food. How do you mm -hmm. approach those kinds of complaints and symptoms? Mm -hmm. I have that at least once a day, I would say, because it's so common. Um, and my usual answer is, if you really think you want to get tested, you feel better knowing um, that your test is negative because I think your test is going to be negative. Again, I don't think it's the pathway that I discussed in the IgE pathway that I can test for. Um, I usually first try to talk them out of testing and I try to explain why I don't think the test is going to be like what they're looking for. Mm -hmm. But if they insist, um, we do the testing and then when it comes back and it's negative, usually, um, that I go over it again and I say, look, this is why it was negative, um, that it's not an IGA mediated, IGE, pardon me, mediated pathway. Um, but what I recommend to everybody is keep a food journal for two weeks. You know, if you're having symptoms almost every day, two weeks is plenty of time to do a reflection and just write down what you're eating, um, how much you ate of that food the time you ate it, and then the time you had symptoms. And just and just sit down and reflect two weeks later. See if there's a pattern. See if there's certain foods you're eating that are causing more of your symptoms. And use that diary to form a dietary elimination plan. Eliminate that food for the next two weeks and see how you feel. Mm -hmm. Because no test is as good as your body. Mm -hmm. You know, and all the tests I can administer have false positives, false negatives, different sensitivities, different specificities. And none of that matters because what matters the most is what happens to you when you eat that food. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And I think that's frustrating for, for families, obviously, because yeah. they want like a piece of paper and some kind of test that says, this is what I have. This is what I can eat. This is what I can't eat. So, you know, I think that's why 
we have so many practitioners ordering tests that are not validated and then they come up with these confusing answers that really confuse everybody and cause some sometimes very severe restrictions Mm -hmm. in the diet for some children. Is there a certain approach that you have to families that you see that might come in with some IgG testing where (laughs) there's like 15 foods they don't eat, things like that? Yeah. So um, I get two kinds of test results when some families come in having already done blood work. One will be a panel. So it's like a pre-selected lab panel. And I'll say, why was this food tested? And they'll be like, oh, she's eating that one. I wasn't worried about that, but it was in the panel. So my first recommendation is always, please don't order panel testing. But um, IgE to food is, again, the anaphylactic pathway. So um when I see those lab results, I go through each one of the foods and I say, do you eat this food? If not, what happens? Um, And if yes, do you tolerate it? And I go through each one. As an allergist, we're trained to look at those numbers and we have cutoffs for different foods. And um, the cutoffs indicate the chances of anaphylaxis, 50 percentile and 95th percentile. So I have those numbers in my head. I've been, you know, that's what fellowship is for, is memorizing and spitting out numbers. Um, And so I go through each one and I say, okay, if there's a red flag, for example, for peanut, we go with the level of 15. So if I see 14 to 15 and I'm like, okay, that's kind of a little high. Or if I see like a 400 or a 300, like that's a really high number. What is going on with that food? And so that's IgE. The patients that have IgEs to like every single food, I generally ask myself, do they have eczema? Mm -hmm. So eczema causes your IgE level total to be elevated. Mm -hmm. And if there's a lot of IgE elevated, then you're more likely to get little IgEs to the little foods you eat. Mm -hmm. And so you'll get what we call false positive IgEs. Mm -hmm. My next step is usually to skin test them to the ones that we're questioning the most or the ones that they've definitely eliminated, but we're tolerating because usually my skin test comes back negative and reassures the patients and the parents. Um, And that's my IgE. When parents come in with IgG testing, IgG um, is more indicative of tolerance to a food. So those are the labs that are not currently approved by the FDA. They're not approved by insurance. They're the labs that I was alluding to earlier that are not reproducible. So you order them with one company and then you order them with a different company and you're going to get disparate results. Mm. So um, we know that IgG is normal in our body. We need IgG and we think IgG to foods is, a, is, a, is an indicator for tolerance. Now, during my fellowship, we used to talk about IgG to foods and I worked with a rheumatologist and allergist and an immunologist all in one person. And he was very um, pro IgG for food intolerances. And he had a very interesting approach about metabolic um, syndromes and mitochondrial diseases. And in a very selected um, kind of approach, he used IgG testing, but it's not validated. Um, I'm a pediatric allergist and I definitely don't use it. Um, And when I see those results, I tell parents, like, I don't know how to interpret this because it's not a validated standardized test in our field. and I tell them, sorry that you went through the blood tests and, you know, um, 
it's your choice. And, you know, the person that you ordered it from should be the one to explain the results to you. Yeah. Okay. That all makes lots of sense. So thank you for explaining that. Tell me a little bit about the allergic triad. So the allergic triad is typically eczema, allergies, and asthma. And I use the word allergies to kind of lump in food allergies as well as allergic rhinitis. Mm -hmm. So, um, we know in children that come with eczema, um, a moderate to severe eczema, one third of them will have food allergies. Mm. So two thirds do not. And that's a big thing that I try <laughs> to tell not parents. the positive. <laughs> yes. And I, I always tell parents, like, when you come in to see me, if you have not noticed a relationship between your child's itchy skin and a food, let's talk about food the second time. Like okay. for today, let's talk about skin hygiene. Let's talk about how to, you know, moisturize your skin, the importance of bath, because there's a lot of mixed opinion on bath time. Um, in my training as a pediatrician, we were told less baths. Mm-hmm. And then in my training as an allergist, we were told two, three times a day baths. Like Ooh. the more baths, the better. And, um, and it was so such a pendulum, right? Like we just went from like two times a week to two times a day. What the heck? And so (laughs) it's very confusing and there's a lot of confusing information out there. But as an allergist, um, it's once a day bath because it rinses off your skin and rinses off the allergens, the irritants, you know, maybe the staphylococcal endotoxins on your skin. So it's once a day bath. That's what we love as allergists and dermatologists will say they agree to that. So, um, so I talk about good skincare hygiene, and then we talk about if the child has both eczema and food allergies, I bring up the atopic triad because they're more at risk. Um, if you think about it, your, your body is connected. So what's happening to your skin and then what's happening inside your gut with the food uh, maybe the processes that's of what's happening in your chest, in your lungs, and then the same processes in your nose. Mm-hmm. So those are just the different manifestations of allergies. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Well, and yeah, thank you for talking about the eczema skincare, because I feel like that's always my first step too. You know, sometimes I'll see that kid who just, wow, they have diffuse eczema, but I'm like, let's, let's try all this stuff first. If we're not making progress or if it's getting a lot worse, we really need to talk about skin testing. So what are your recommendations for skin testing for infants that are developing eczema? Who should be sent to an allergist for testing? Um, So we like to see moderate to severe persistent Mm -hmm. eczema. Mm -hmm. And what that means is topical corticosteroids, Mm -hmm. um, anything prescription strength, generally speaking, might need to be seen by an allergist. If it's more than just creases, mm-hmm. probably should see an allergist. Um, and if in doubt, again, family history of food allergies, probably should see an allergist. Um, and if you along the way have any questions or the parents have any questions, see an allergist. We may not always test them. Like I said, on the first day, I've unfortunately seen just recently two kids who they just didn't have available surface area for testing. Mm you know, I need to be able to test you on some part of your skin, but their back was completely covered with eczema, their arms were covered. And if I can't, if I don't have clear skin, how am I going to test you? Um, I didn't even know that. See, I didn't know that. Like I just, I I don't know how you guys do the allergy testing. I should probably go (laughs) in someday and see, you know, an allergist do all this testing, but I didn't know that the skin had to be free of the eczema in order for it to be valid, but that makes complete sense. 
Yeah, we, I mean, we can't read. Um, so when we scratch someone's skin, we're looking for a mosquito bite kind of a reaction. Mm -hmm. And so we always have to have a positive control and a negative control. Mm -hmm. So we need space for at least two pricks and then all the allergens that we're questioning. Um, so we need a little bit. I mean, it doesn't have to be a lot, but like, you know, um, I don't know what this is, like a two by five or three by five, you know, patch, at least a small, so even if it's like spread, widespread, one on the upper back and one on the lower back, mm -hmm. I just need some space that is not red and inflamed or excoriated, which means scratched through um, or blistered. I need to have some surface area that I can scratch the allergen and know that the, the response is from the my scratch and not the pre-existing condition underneath. So one quick note, people that come to us with hives, chronic urticaria, um, and ask to get tested, we don't test urticaria patients because you're having random hives. So how am I to know that you're having a hive where I place the allergen because of the allergen or because you would have randomly had the hive there because the skin was scratched and agitated? Mm. So we do not test with chronic urticaria for a couple of reasons, but this is definitely one of them. Um, until the skin is completely healed or um, well controlled, uh, there's no reason to pursue further testing in chronic urticaria. Chronic urticaria is not caused by a food allergy, but the, there's some testing limitations in certain skin conditions that occurs. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Oh, wow. I, I'm learning so much today. Good. So, I'm glad. <laughs> um, a little bit more on eczema. Sure. Do you have any recommendations, lifestyle recommendations that you talk to families about in the prevention and treatment of eczema? Yes, I do. And I believe in this strongly, which is moisturization of the skin. I alluded earlier, daily baths. Um, and right after the bath, I, I say this every single day, so many times a day, 60 seconds from bath to moisturization. You get 60 seconds. The sooner you do it, the better. I, I tell parents, don't use a towel. You don't need a towel. It's actually better if the skin is dripping. Like, and my favorite moisturizers are petroleum jelly, um, CeraVe, um, uh, Vanny cream, and then anything else. That if the parents are very particular, if they like Aquaphor, that's fine. It's not my favorite because there's lanolin inside of Aquaphor, and that can be sensitizing for some of my patients. Um, Eucerin, Avino, um, whatever, you know, whatever product you like. If it's a battle, you, you get to pick two, you put two out and you tell your toddler or your child, pick which one you want. <laughs> and we have to moisturize your skin today. <laughs> like that's a given, especially those of us in cold weather <laughs> countries, part of the country. Yeah. Okay. Well, you broke my heart when you talked about Aquaphor not being your favorite, because I feel like I, I like talk about Aquaphor almost every single visit of my day <laughs> as a primary care pediatrician, but it's important to know about the lanolin because I have seen some children that do worse on Aquaphor and yeah. I didn't know that that's the particular thing. So petroleum jelly you feel is more simple. It just has less yeah. in it. Um, yeah. Plus it's cheaper, right? 
Yeah, it's cheaper. It's usually 100% petroleum jelly. Some of the germ studies looked at petroleum jelly specifically for eczema prevention, and they proved that it was pretty effective. I looked at a few studies when I was pregnant with my first son, and I remember reading about vitamin D supplementation during pregnancy being important, especially 28 weeks and on, as maybe helpful in preventing eczema in a child at risk. So I talk about vitamin D, I talk about sunshine. I talk about moisturization of the skin from an early infant. And, you know, in the beginning, infants don't need baths that often. Um, I'm talking like closer to, you know, past the newborn stage. And I'm talking really like two plus months of age, you know, because mm -hmm. in the, depending on what season you're in and what your lifestyle is like, maybe daily baths is not a possibility and mm -hmm. they don't need it. They don't need it that much. And um, that's the big, big thing on prevention that I like. And lifestyle-wise, I always say cotton, cotton clothing, and you know, not too tight fitting, um, and yeah, try okay. to stop the scratching. <laughs> yeah, that's the that's the key there. And what is the most common allergy that's associated with eczema? Is there one that kind of stands out above the rest? Of course, uh, the allergist favorite. It's eczema. Okay. Mm -hmm. yeah. Eczema. Oh, yeah. I love that. Yeah. <laughs> okay. And then how about dairy? Is that one near the top too or not really for eczema? Absolutely. For children in general, it's cow's milk, it's mm -hmm. egg and peanut as a top three. Okay. All right. Well, good. So I'm not too far off base on that one. No. And then let's talk a little bit about egg. Um, let's say eczema again. Let's talk about asthma now. Sure. Because there has been some talk from some people about asthma improving with dietary changes. So I'd, I'd love to hear your take on asthma and what we can do as far as diet and lifestyle changes to decrease the risk or decrease symptoms. So asthma is tough um, because you know, I need about three hours to talk to you about asthma. <laughs> um, there is so much discussion in our field about endotypes and genotypes and phenotypes. And so um, what is triggering a patient's asthma is not one factor in isolation. It's multiple different things. And genetics is one significant factor, um, but the environment, and that means outside environment, outside your body, so weather, temperature, viruses, that kind of stuff, and then inside your body, right? So allergens inside your body or your own psychological um, uh, like emotions in the moment can also be an asthma trigger. So there are so many triggers that I get a lot of people that come and tell me that dairy, um, dairy makes them more phlegmy mm -hmm. and uh, triggers their coughing. And I tell them, well, cut back, mm -hmm. cut back mm -hmm. on the dairy. Mm -hmm. Your body doesn't like it. It's making mucus as a, as a, response probably to something inflammatory in what you are eating or drinking that's dairy. Mm -hmm. So that's the okay. simplest solution. Yeah. Okay. And then what about just simply eating more fruits and vegetables? Can that be helpful to some people with asthma? Um, I can't think of it being harmful. So I, I don't know of anything off the top of my head that says, absolutely, I can tell you that there's a lot of diets on the internet that are like pro-inflammatory or less inflammatory or histaminergic diets or less histamine releasing. And um, 
you know, low nickel diets and high nickel diets. And there's all kinds of, there's all kinds of foods and diets. And so I don't know if I have a, I don't have a specific response to that. I always encourage fruits and vegetables. And yeah. I haven't even heard of this nickel thing. Oh, yeah. <laughs> Again, just, another besides hour. Besides eating coins. I mean, I don't know what. <laughs> it's, a, it's related to contact dermatitis. Um, and so people that are allergic to nickel, because mm-hmm. um, nickel is the most common metal. Okay. Allergy. Okay. All right. So that's making a little bit of sense to me, <laughs> but I was like, what? Okay. Yeah. All right. Great. Before I get into some more personal questions for you, is there anything else you want to talk about in the field of allergy that you really need to get off your chest? Oh man. Um, <laughs> but you're on you the hot what? seat. I know there's, um, I think that just talking about, there's a lot of people that call themselves allergists and know who your doctor is, mm-hmm. is my biggest thing. Cause I see people coming in with like, we, we talked about testing and testing them by different kinds of, um, certified or not certified folks. And so I always encourage our patients to like know the difference between an allergist and ENT um, and other specialists, like just to just take a minute and, you know, put it into Google or read it on the credentials or ask me and I'm happy to tell you what the difference is Mm -hmm. because we study in different ways and we learn about the immune system differently. Mm -hmm. And so um, go to someone that knows at least I hope is kind and listens, but you know, knows what they're saying to you mm-hmm. and is following some of the evidence and the science behind their recommendations. Awesome. I love it. What do you wish more parents knew? Hmm. <laughs> That's about really anything. <laughs> I know. I'm like, wow, I have so many things that are jumping in my head flu shot, car seats, mm-hmm. <laughs> like water, how great water is, um, hygiene. I don't, I, I need to think about that. What do I want more parents to know from an allergy perspective? Sure. I think that, um, I think that what we covered is really, really important in terms of preventing food allergies that like we do the best we can as parents. Mommy guilt is so real. And it's hard not to to sit and say, what if, and what could I have done differently? And, you know, you do your best to read those labels. You do your best to provide for your child. And sometimes you just have to let it go mm-hmm. and say that I am human and I did my best and that is what I could do. Um, for my parents with food allergies listening today, my biggest thing is please, please, please make sure you know how to use epinephrine. Mm. That is probably a big thing for me is um, parents not realizing that there are end caps to the EpiPen, you know, and which part of an EpiPen goes into your thigh, which part is a trigger part. Um, the, the talking device, the AviQ, it's easy to use, but did you know that AviQ exists? Because mm-hmm. a lot of parents have not heard about the, the talking device and it's wonderful. So know your child's medications and give yourself permission to let things go. Yeah. Familiarize yourself with your device before it's an emergency, because definitely during an emergency, you can't, you can't think (laughs) you're like your, your brain just like flew out the window and you're just panicking and it's really difficult. And one second feels like a year. And so, Yeah. yeah, I think that's, 
excellent advice. I'm sure that that's something that you repeat over and over and over again. I didn't know about this talking thing. Can you explain that a little bit? Yeah, there's a auto-injectable epinephrine device called ABIQ. That's the brand name. And um, it's, a, it's a very tiny rectangular-shaped device, and you pull it out of its pocket, jacket pocket, and it literally just starts speaking to you. And it, it's kind of like an AED, so mm. it kind of walks you through um, how to use it, where to place it. It even counts down after the needle is, is injected, and it, you know, it, as it's administering the dose, and then um, it tells you when the injection is complete. That's wonderful. Wow. That's a great device to have. And I've heard about an intranasal epinephrine that has been created. That's not approved here in the United States yet, right? Correct. Yeah. A lot of studies going on in that. There's a lot of interest. There's a lot of studies going on in cat and dog allergies. I mean, I was reading yesterday about um, how male dogs, like boy dogs, are more likely to cause allergenic um, like responses in humans as opposed to female dogs. And it's like, who do? Wow. <laughs> like, I know there's a lot of stuff coming and they're trying to make a hypoallergenic cat in Australia or something. So I don't, there's a lot of research, a lot of interest in allergies. So stay tuned. This is just the beginning, I'm sure. Yeah, we're, we'll know so much five, 10, 15 years down the road as more research yeah. is conducted. What personal habit are you most proud of? How did you develop it and how do you maintain it? Wow. And it can be about anything, obviously. Yeah. Um, Probably mindfulness. Um, I'm most proud of it because it takes a lot of effort to do it. Um, And how did I develop it? It's been slow. It's been a struggle, but I need it for release. I, as you know, and you probably have busy days, but my days are long. My days can be very stressful. I have, you know, unpredictable anaphylaxis in the office at any minute from the immunotherapy we administer to the oral challenges to the people, my patients that are getting skin tested, like anything is a possibility. And, um, I try to just uh, do deep breathing and meditation and even for just three breaths, uh, just to recenter, refocus before I go into the next room because one encounter can leave you emotionally impacted. And especially when I break the news to, to a parent that yes, your child has a food allergy and I think it's persistent, like the test results were uber positive. Um, and then, you know, sometimes I, I, the parents become tearful and it's hard not to get emotional because you know what it's like to have a child and you know, uh, you don't want anything, no harm to come their way. So this is like the least expected diagnosis. And, um, so mindfulness. Probably. And how long have you been working on your mindfulness practice? Uh, probably my entire life, um, <laughs> to be honest. Um, maybe more focused since medical school. I think medical school was the most stressful time in my life mm. um, with the amount of things that are expected. And it's quite different going through high school and undergrad and realizing quote unquote, what a joke that was <laughs> compared to the academic rigors of medical school and um, needing to let things go. Cause you see a lot, you see life through death in medical school. Mm-hmm. It was my first exposure to 
people, me performing CPR, me pronouncing people dead to Mm -hmm. me delivering a baby in, you know, sometimes within a short span of just a couple of months. And, um, and I think that was like the start of this long practice. Yeah. Well, it sounds like it's really benefited you. And I know, cause you're also in private practice, right? Correct. Yeah. Yeah. And so very busy days and you're not just thinking about patient care, but all kinds of other things that comes with running a practice and mm-hmm. all of that. So that's awesome. So grateful that you shared that with us. How can listeners connect with you? Um, perhaps the easiest way is through social media. I'm on there. I haven't been as active recently because of being so busy at work and um, in my personal life. There's been some life events happening, but I promise I do check my messages every day. And so uh, I'm at Pete's Allergy MD and on Instagram. And that's probably the most active account that I keep. I do not offer specific medical advice. And I have been getting a lot of DMs about that. And I apologize because I don't want to even, I don't want to be fake. And I don't want to pretend that I don't care because I do care. I want you to reach out and ask a doctor your questions, but it should be your personal physician. Mm -hmm. And you should be able to meet with an allergist because, I mean, we spend at least 15 minutes just getting history mm-hmm. and examining the patient. And I, I need that quality time with you. So it's not fair for me to answer a text or, or a quick, you know, one sentence question like that. There's so much more behind that story. So, yeah. And that's a really important point that I know that a lot of physicians are on social media and this happens a lot. A lot of families might be desperate for answers. They, they might not know who to ask, but really it's, it's just not safe for us to be giving medical advice in this way. We don't get the full picture. It's not good for your child either. It's not good for us. So yeah, the best thing is to ask your provider whenever it comes to medical questions, but Ask for a referral, you know, if you want to meet an allergist, say, you know, they, local doctors know who's good around them. And if they don't, there is, um, there's actually a website. If I, if you don't mind, I'd love to share it. Yeah, It's, um, it's four A's and an I, Mm -hmm. um, and it's, it's called Quad AI. Um, it's the American Academy of Asthma and Allergy and Immunology, and it's one of the governing bodies for allergists. And so they have find an allergist. So I usually have my patients type into Google, or Azen and I find an allergist, and it's usually the first or second um, link, and it takes you into a search box. You put in the zip code, or you put in your um, city and state, and it'll just tell you kind of who's nearby, at least who's like been board certified, and it. You can click on a hyperlink. You can get their name, their practice information whether they're pediatric trained or internal medicine trained and um, like, you know, when they last recertified, it gives you a rough idea um, <laughs> how up to date or, or um, if they're still in practice and stuff like that. Mm-hmm. So if they speak different languages, it's on there. That's great. Thank you so much for that resource. Is there a shortage of allergists? You know, um, yes, there was a recent article in our journal saying that, Back in my time, getting into an allergy fellowship was extremely competitive, and now there's being less and less applicants, and they're thinking it's due to lack of exposure during residency to the allergy field. Mm-hmm. You have to kind of like search it out. 
Mm-hmm. Uh, to, like, I had never heard about being an allergist until I was in residency. And one of my co-residents was like, oh, I'm on my allergy rotation. I'm like, what is that? And, then, and I like, I did not go into medicine knowing I was going to be an allergist one day. Um, and it was, uh, it was really cool to hear. She's like, it's great. The hours are great. And I'm like, okay, well, I, I want to hear more about this. And so I asked to do an allergy rotation. And that's when I learned that it's not, I mean, the hours were great from a medical student and from a resident perspective, but um, like, but the, uh, the immunology is really amazing. The science is like so cool and it integrates a lot of my different passions, especially food. Yeah. Well, I wish I would have taken an allergy rotation because it is one of my most frequent referrals that I make. So I know part of it because there's children that might need it and part of it because there's parents that insist on it. (laughs) So if parents really want it, I'll tell them, I don't think this is probably an allergy, but okay, I'll send you to the, not the allergist. Um, but it is the most common referral I make in my wow. office. Mm-hmm. Wow. Yeah. Thank you I, for sharing. I, there's just, I think there is um, a perception that we have a lot of allergies, but like I said before, it is, some of these are food sensitivities, food intolerances, or even just being human reactions, yeah. normal reactions that I yeah. think sometimes we're over-interpreting or, um, people are, are desperate for answers for some of these symptoms that may be kind of vague, mild, nonspecific. Yeah. So it's hard to find a provider that is able to, you know, unify all of these things. And I try my best because I do also have knowledge in some of these areas, but sometimes people want to go to the subspecialist, you know what I'm saying? So yeah. <laughs> they want the step above me um, to talk Don't about those that. things. Don't say that. next to you. <laughs> There's no above, there's no behind, there's no below. No, but for real, like if you know the immune system, you're way above me because that stuff's confusing (laughs) to me. Okay. Are you kidding? (laughs) I was like, you know, um, it's really funny. I actually thought the immune system was very confusing as well. Uh And it took me to a fellowship because you know what? We don't have time to sit there and like think about the mast cells and the, you know, how does IgG and how does IgE, how are they formed and like all the T cell developments and the B cell developmental stages, like all of that stuff is so cool. But if you have time to read about it, you have yeah. to read a textbook. And in my fellowship, we read two textbooks. <laughs> year one, we read one and year two, we read the other. And it was just like, you don't know things until you sit down and read. So uh-huh. it's just, we don't have time in our residency or pediatric residency. And then once you get out into practice, forget it, you know? Yeah. Well, sometime, hopefully we'll be able to get together and you can give me the cliff note version of you know what I need to know because <laughs> I feel like Absolutely. it is like this nebulous <laughs> immune system you know <laughs> you are really funny I'd be happy to there's a really great website on that one too I, I use websites a lot for referring referring my patients to sending them to appropriate sites to read you know and um, here's here's another answer second answer to that question about what do I want parents to know mm-hmm. what sites are good on the internet can we talk about that for two seconds sure go we- ahead conversation um so dot org dot edu dot gov those are the only three sites that i want you getting medical information from and that's it i don't i don't trust you can't vet and support that dot coms are written by 
people that are reputable and know what they're saying and the scientific community agrees with them. But um, those three sites, if you read something on there, at least you know that some of the information is probably legit. Mm -hmm. And I say probably because I never, you can't guarantee anything with a hundred percent anyway, but yeah. Um, and there's something um, that we never even touched on because there was so much to talk about in allergies, as you know, but that's oral allergy syndrome. Mm. And I, it's just popping in my head. And I was like, you know, talk about the interplay between mother nature and your body. Mm. It's the pollens and the foods. Like they come from the same source. They come from the soil. Or they come from the trees and your body, you know, translates it the same, just depends on where it sees it in the nose or in the mouth. You know, and mm -hmm. am I going to sneeze and am I going to have runny nose and itchy watery eyes because my eyes are seeing this pollen or am I going to have an itchy mouth and itchy tongue and itchy throat because my, my mouth is going to see this pollen. Yeah. So oral allergy syndrome is fascinating to me. Yeah. And oral allergy syndrome, you mainly get from like fresh fruits, some fresh vegetables, yes. things like that, right? Correct. Yeah, correct. Because exactly. the pollens are on them. Or, or Actually, what? What is it share, that's causing it? So it's not just on them, but the food itself may contain those epitopes is the word. Mm -hmm. <laughs> so here I'm mm -hmm. going to bring out immunology for you. <laughs> um, but they share structures, I guess is a nice way to say that, mm -hmm. um, in common between the pollen and the fruit because they and, come from the same place, right? Yeah. And so, so. then it kind of triggers a reaction, but it's Correct. inside your mouth instead of in your nose and your eyes. Right. Yeah. And that's a histamine reaction, right? It is. Yeah. And um, usually the answer is to avoid the food or um, cook the food and change the structure of the protein mm -hmm. or, um, or just not eat it altogether. Yeah. yeah. Well, what about that? Uh, we got, we went back to allergy, but I just have this one <laughs> because this is, I know this isn't very common, but I've been seeing more about it. Histamine intolerance. What is that? And who gets that? I don't know. I don't have an answer for you on that one because we would not be alive today if we don't have histamine inside our bodies. So yeah. histamine is naturally occurring, naturally occurring compound, and we all need mast cells to be alive. So um, I don't know. Okay, great. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I'm not going to make honesty. it up. <laughs> but yeah, it is one of those things that is you, you you're digging in the internet for things, and all of a sudden some of these things come up, and they're like you might have histamine intolerance, you know, and it just sounds really legit. But then I'm like, I've never heard of this before. Um, what exactly is it? Am I having it? You know, so it can be really confusing sometimes. Oh, mm. one thing I was going to say too, sure. um, which I don't know if you knew, but definitely .edu and .gov, they yeah. have to be verified to yeah. be like an educational or governmental institution, but .org, yeah. almost anybody can buy a .org. So oh, there okay. are some .org that look really great and professional. Ah, so I would okay. caution families because especially okay. when it comes to vaccines, yeah, things like that, there's a lot of .orgs out there. Oh, that's um, good to know. So, because I know, you know I bought, I bought a, a couple .orgs for, you know, websites that I have. I have both the .com and the .org. So okay. for certain websites, you can buy .org. Anybody oh, can buy. Know that. But for edu and gov, not anybody can yeah. just buy that okay. you know, URL. Okay. That's really great. Um, great point. Thank you for clarifying that because, uh, in my little world of allergy, there's not that many dot works I, that I yeah. know of that I can say are 
bad or I would steer people away from. Like, you know, I use National Eczema Association. I use like the eosinophilic esophagitis home. Like I use certain sites that are specific and um, I found to be helpful. And I, I'm hoping that I I quoted the right EOE site. uh, That's a dot org. But the, those are like the big ones I, I usually refer patients to. So Awesome. Well, we'll definitely look all those up and get the right links and post them all on the, on the blog post and on the post for the podcast, but this has been awesome. Well, I feel like I definitely need to have you back eventually. And we can talk about any of these other topics more in depth. I know we kind of scratched the surface. See how I put in that scratch part. I mean, I kind of feel like (laughs) I had, you know, scratch, scratch the surface anyway, um, of some of these topics. And I know that there's more to talk about, but you have been super amazing. I just love your energy. I love your story. And it has been such a pleasure to talk to you today. Thank you. Likewise. Thank you. It's been an honor to be here. This is my first podcast ever. <laughs> Yay. You did amazing. <laughs> <laughs> and I made it. And I uh, hope that the listeners, anybody and everybody um, find some of this useful and, and amidst the rambling, there are some take home points that were helpful is my, uh, is my overall purpose for today. <laughs> oh, there definitely was. And I will definitely see you in the future and hopefully in person sometime. But for now, I hope that you have a plantastic day. Thank you. You as well. I hope that you enjoyed today's episode. Thank you for tuning in. And I look forward to having you back again next week. A very special thank you to the band Rocket Surgeons for permission to use the broccoli song. To find out more about the Rocket Surgeons, please visit their website at rocketsurgeonsband.com or Facebook at Rocket Surgeons Music. Please subscribe so that you never miss an episode. Also, all of my social media links can be found in the podcast description. Send me a message and let me know what you think of today's podcast. Sharing is caring. Please share, rate, and review my podcast and drop me a line if you have ideas for future episodes. Thank you once again and have a plantastic day. Say goodbye to your credit card rewards. Greedy corporate mega stores led by Walmart and Target are pushing for a law in Congress to take away your hard earned cash back and travel points to line their pockets. The Durbin Marshall credit card bill would enact harmful credit card routing mandates that would end credit card rewards as we know it. If you love your credit card rewards, tell your lawmakers, hands off my rewards. Tell them to oppose the Durbin Marshall credit card bill. This is your invitation to a masterclass in engineering and design. Your ticket to go from zero to 60 with the Lexus Performance Line. A feeling this dynamic is invite only. Fortunately, you're invited. Experience the exhilaration of the Lexus Performance Line and some of the best offers of the year on select models at the Invitation to Lexus sales event, now through April 1st. Experience amazing at your Lexus dealer.